Mm. So we're going to keep looking at uh, Acts chapter 4. We're reading from chapter 4, verse, what, verse 32. 32 to 5, verse 16. So I'll read for us. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and lay them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. What a bizarre story, right? People actually being killed in the middle of church. Two of them, stone dead. I bet you're glad we're not meeting face to face this week, aren't you? Imagine the kids talk for this passage. I suppose though, we could, we could send Pete out to do a church on the road with this, see how it goes. That would get people locking their doors, wouldn't it? What did Ananias and Sapphira do that was so wrong here? Isn't Peter a little bit harsh? What did they actually do that would deserve death? And when you think about it, how is it that Ananias and Sapphira here lie to the Holy Spirit and to God when really the only people they lied to were Peter and the other apostles? Am I going to die if I don't fulfill 
my best guess for church this year. This is such a bizarre passage, isn't it? But you know, these passages are the very best passages of all. Because when we don't understand what the Bible is saying, that's when we start to really read it carefully. We don't just tick it off in our minds as we're reading along because we understand, or at least we think we understand what it's saying. No, these are the passages that force us to slow down and to really think and read carefully, don't they? And one of the keys to understanding this passage is something we saw last week, and that is that the age of God's blessing has come. If you weren't watching along, Peter and John are heading to the temple and they come across a man who has been crippled and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man does, he goes walking and leaping and praising God into the temple. And when everyone came running astonished, Peter explained the miracle. And what he said was, don't be surprised at this. This is God fulfilling the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, God made these wonderful promises of a time and age of blessing. When God would show mercy and grace instead of judgment, forgiveness instead of wrath. Really, what he promised was heaven. Here's one of the passages, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, or the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. See what God promised? He promised good news to the poor, freedom for the captives, the end of mourning. It was going to be a great age of God's blessing. Here's another passage, Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He'll come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He'll come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. You see, God was going to come with vengeance and retribution on his enemies, but with salvation for his people. The eyes of the blind are going to be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. What a beautiful image, that one. And the mute tongue will shout for joy. And you know, Jesus quoted both of these passages during his ministry in Luke. And both times he said that he had come to fulfill them. Because you see, Jesus brings the dawn of the age of blessing. Its fulfillment is heaven, but Jesus brings the dawn. And last week we saw that Peter's healing this man was a sign of it. Isaiah 35 was fulfilled right in front of our eyes as a lame man literally did start leaping like a deer. And look, this is how we have to understand church. Church is the community of blessing. Church is the gathered people who experience the blessings of God. The full blessing is heaven, but we experience the beginnings of it now. And so look at this new church in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. 
All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Isn't that just the ideal picture of a church? If you had to describe the church that you would just love to belong to and attend, isn't that it? Because these are the people of blessing. See, it's easy for us to think of church as a human organization that you go to. Hunter Bible Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Anglican Church. It's very easy to think of it as a human organization, almost like a club that you can become a member of. They run it and I go along. But church is not that in the book of Acts. Church is the community of blessing. Church are the people God has called out of the world to love and to bless. So let's dig into that description of that little church there. Well, that's a, quite a big church. Let's dig into that description of that new church. I reckon there's three things that we want to see about it. The first thing is, as the blessed people of God, they're united in heart and mind. They're one. And look, if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know that in this world, that's kind of rare to find in a church, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for a while, often you'll know that often churches are very divided in heart and in mind. They're divided in heart because people can't get on. Because your mother said something that we've all forgotten now, but your mother said something to my mother back in 1972 and we can't forgive each other. Or because you voted for this pastor and I voted against that pastor. So many churches are filled with people who have to sit on the opposite sides of the church because they just can't stand the side of each other. Or they're divided in mind. This faction is pro-speaking in tongues. That faction is anti-speaking in tongues. This faction is pro-women preaching and that faction is anti-women preaching. And the only way we can manage to stay together as a church is not to talk about our differences. Don't mention the war. Don't mention speaking in tongues or whatever it happens to be. But that church in Jerusalem is nothing like that, is it? They're one in heart and mind. They love each other from the heart. They agree with each other in their minds. They believe the same things. I think you can see what it is they believe in verse 33. It's the apostles' teaching. This word that the apostles are powerfully preaching. And as we think about the kind of church that we want to be, it's like that one in Jerusalem, isn't it? A church with one heart. We love God passionately. And we love each other as well. And a church with one mind. We all agree with the apostles' teaching. There aren't the divisions of thought and the factions. Isn't that exactly the kind of church you want to belong to? You know, by the grace of God, I think it is the kind of church we are by the grace of God. But do you know what it takes to stay that church? It takes a real, genuine humility. Paul talks to one of the churches, the Ephesians, about it. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. 
be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How do you keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? By being completely humble and gentle. It takes real humility to be united in heart because I have to be willing to overlook the offence. That person who hurt me, that person who said the wrong thing, who made the wrong decision, they said something that was insensitive or rude and I could bear a grudge, I could take it personally, but I choose not to because in humility, I decide that peace and unity is more important than my hurt feelings. The unity of Jesus' church, this community of blessing, is more important than my injured pride. Now, when we do that, that's real humility, isn't it? Jesus' church is more important than I am. That's real humility. But that's the only way churches can stay united because we're all going to sin. It's the nature of us. We may be the community of blessing, but we're going to see in a minute that that doesn't stop sin from being part of the church. Of course, we're going to sin. We're human. But what stops us from flying apart is humility. It takes humility as well to be one in mind. The humility to say, well, look, I've always actually thought it was this. I always thought the Bible said this. But you think it's that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I suppose I could be wrong. I guess I better go back and read the Bible. Now, I saw a wonderful example of this recently. I was so encouraged by this person. Acts chapter 2 uh, talks about speaking in tongues. You remember it a few weeks ago. It was, it was a fairly small part of the passage. And someone from church got in touch with me and just sort of said, look, uh, can you tell me what it is you think about speaking in tongues? And it turned out that we both agreed with each other. We both thought the Bible thought pretty much the same thing. But I loved what this person said to me. It was so beautiful. He said, I was just concerned that my personal theology may have differed from our church's theology and I just didn't want to create a division on doctrine. Isn't that so incredibly encouraging? It's not that we're not allowed to have our own views. Of course we're allowed to have our own views. You've got to form a view. It's the Bible. It's God's word. You've got to know what you think about it. But real humility is that we all hold our views lightly until we go back and check them against Scripture because Jesus' church is just too important to have divided minds. I love that first church. One in heart and mind. What a blessed church, right? That's the church we want to be, isn't it? But you know, the second thing about this church that you notice in Acts is their incredible generosity to each other. It's so clear, isn't it? Look in verse 32 again. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to anyone who had need. What you're seeing there is that God's grace and blessing is contagious. God has poured out his grace and blessing on his people 
And now the people are pouring out grace and blessing on each other. There are people in church who don't have money, they don't have food, and so the rest of the people band together to feed them and clothe them. People are even selling their property to give to the people who are in need because God has poured out his blessings. Now those blessings are overflowing amongst the church. Now, look, one of the things that people have wrestled with here is, is this a form of Christian socialism or Christian communism? Because in verse 32, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. They shared everything they had. Does that mean that Christians are against the idea of personal ownership? Should we all be selling everything we own and putting it in some big communal pot? Should we be Christian communists? Look, I think that there are two things for us to say here. The first one is that early church was in a unique situation. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw that all of this was happening around the Feast of Pentecost. When Acts chapter 2 verse 5, there were people, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. This isn't a normal situation. You've got pilgrims from all over the world coming to Jerusalem. And so they're away from home. They're away from their support. They're away from their possessions. And now most likely they've extended their stay because they've come to believe in Jesus. They've got to be fed and clothed, which is a slightly different situation to the one we'll face now, isn't it? It's not that we're completely free of needy people, but at that moment in time, that church had needs on an unprecedented scale. So that's the first point. But the second point I want you to notice is that they didn't legislate sharing. See, communism is where we legislate sharing. I take everything off you and I put it into the communal pot so that you've got no choice but to share. You don't own those things anymore. You have to share. But you know, that was always the great weakness of communism, wasn't it? It tried to legislate sharing. It forced people to share. But you know that rules cannot change the human heart, don't you? I mean, you can force people to share, but you can't force people to be generous because generosity resides in the heart, doesn't it? Communism failed because it never actually changed a human heart. And so at every opportunity, people didn't share. The leaders would skim from the top. The workers would skim from below. Everybody could see that their sharing was never actually equal. Some people got a lot more of their share than others. So why should I be forced to share? That's communism. Generosity is a different thing. Generosity is a miracle that happens in the human heart. A rule can't make people be generous. Only God's age of blessing can lead people to love being generous. God's blessing has been showered down on the community with forgiveness and the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and miracles. And now they're pouring out blessing on each other. It's a revolution in the human heart so that I love to give. I mean, when have you ever heard people selling their property in order to give their money away. Oh, sure. Sometimes people will give out of their excess. Sometimes we'll give because, you know, I've got this lying around and I don't have a special need for it at the moment. So of course, but when have you ever heard of people selling things just in order to give it away? This is a miracle greater than anything else you see in the book of Acts. Raising people who are sick, we can do that with medicine. But I tell you, we've never found a way to change the human heart. But God has here. It's the age of blessing being poured out. 
And again, isn't this the kind of church we want to be? Wouldn't you love to go to this kind of church? Where people are looked after financially, people who are struggling, are cared for. Where people are so loving, they sacrifice their own good, their own possessions to do it. You know what's really lovely? I've been part of our church for 20 years. And as I look back on the character of our church over the 20 years, by the grace of God, I see a community just like that. There's always been a culture of generosity in our church. Most of the time it's informal. People hear about someone in need and they just answer it. They gather together a group of friends and they just do it anonymously. The leaders are never told about it because the leaders don't need to be involved. Mind you, we also do have a formal ministry for looking after people. The membership team gathers resources to help people who are in need. And you know what is so lovely, just so beautiful? Earlier on in COVID, Dave Allen had to put up a message on Facebook saying, we don't need any more money. We don't need money for you to give for, for people's special needs. We've actually got enough because, you know, just the possibility that some people might be in need was enough for some of you to give and to give really generously. That is a miracle. And look, we may actually, who knows how long the economic effects of COVID will last. But by the grace of God, I am confident in our church because the Holy Spirit is here. Mind you, there, there are more ways to be generous than just physically, just financially, aren't there? There are all sorts of ways. You see a generous heart at work in a church. It can be as simple as the motive that we come to church with. We, we were going to be looking at coming back to church in a couple of weeks' time. It's kind of dicey now, isn't it? But the motive that we come to church with, do I come to receive or do I come to bless? Do I come to have other people serve me or do I come in order to serve other people? Do I demand that other people welcome me? I sit here and until someone comes and talks to me, I'm going to be judging. Or do I look for the other person who could do with someone to talk to them? Who needs a lift to church that I can go out of my way to pick them up? In relationships, the person who understands the age of blessing looks for relationships with people who need a friend, not the one they'd like to be their friend. They look for people we can be generous to. Who's going through a hard time at the moment? Whose kids are sick? Who feels out? They don't feel like, who feels left out? They don't feel like they're part of church. Who needs a friend? Who can I invite around in order to make their life better? God has so blessed me. How can that blessing overflow from my life into the life of others? This is a miracle that only God can do in the human heart. It lifts my mind off my own needs and my own circumstance and turns me into a servant like my Lord who loved and served me. Again, friends, I'm so grateful to God that as I look around our church, that's what I see. I see a church that's generous and loving and kind. By the grace of God, we are a generous group of people and it is an act of God. We want to give him the praise for it and not feel proud. And of course we could always do better, but let's enjoy the blessing of God. Let's acknowledge the blessing of God among us and say, God, we thank you for it. It's a sign of the age of blessing. Because the third sign of the age of blessing in this little church in, uh, in Acts is Jesus is bring, being preached powerfully. Look in verse 33 again. With great power, 
the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that fantastic? At the end of the passage, we see that people are becoming Christians and joining in. Isn't it fantastic? There's this boldness. There's this conviction. Jesus has risen from the dead. The blessings are being poured out. The world has got to know. And so the apostles are preaching with boldness. And look, we're going to look at more at this more next week, sort of preaching the gospel to the world. But again, isn't this the kind of church that you long to be part of? A church that powerfully testifies that Jesus is risen from the dead. A preach that, the church that powerfully preaches, come to the Lord Jesus. His is the only name given to us under heaven by which we can be saved. Don't we want to be part of a church that longs to tell the lost and that does tell the lost and that we see people become Christians in the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, of course, everyone in church is going to be a different part of that. We're all going to do it in a different way. Some of us are going to be more vocal and loud and others are going to be quieter. We're going to find it a little bit harder. Some of us are going to be praying. That's why in this season, we're talking about being part of someone's story. You don't have to be the leading player. Jesus is the leading player. The Holy Spirit's the leading player. But what part are you going to play in someone's story? Are you going to be the faithful friend who prays every day for someone until they become a Christian? Are you going to be the person who invites your friend along to life? Are you the person who'll sit down next to the newcomer or who'll welcome them, who'll serve them coffee in the first time they come? We'll all play different parts, but don't you long to be part of a church where there's this ambition, this desire, this hunger for the gospel to go out and people are becoming Christians around us? Don't you want to be the kind of Christian where people are becoming Christians around you? There's this sense that the gospel is going out like in Acts. I think we all do, don't we? Because we know that Jesus' gospel is the gospel of blessing. We know that it's good news to take to the world. And again, by the grace of God, Hunter Bible Church has always been this kind of church. God has done such wonderful, such lovely work among us. Over the years, hundreds of people have gone from death to life. And we've been privileged to just go along with God in this journey. You see, Acts is showing us here a blessed church, that the church is the community of blessing in the last days. And there's one person that kind of personifies this in the passage. We're, we're shown this amazing guy, Barnabas, who's going to come up again and again in the book of Acts. Look in Acts 4 verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the, apostle, uh, whom the apostles the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is there because he kind of personifies the very best of what we're seeing. Even his name means son of encouragement. What a great name. And yet if Barnabas personifies the age of blessing... Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they contrast it. So have a look in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now look, on the surface, that doesn't appear like a particularly great crime, does it? In fact, they're actually pretty generous. They sell a property... And they give some of the money to the church. That's pretty generous, isn't it? Because they could, when you think about it, they could 
have given none. And look, even if they did pretend that they'd given all of it from the sale, that's not such a big crime, is it? So they pretended to be a little bit more generous than they actually are. So they're a little bit vain. We're all a little bit vain, aren't we? Haven't you ever wanted to give the impression that you're a slightly better person than you really are? I mean, how great is their crime really? Well, says Peter, it's as great as this. It's a lie to God himself. See, just have a look how Peter describes Ananias and Sapphira's act in verse 3. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money, you've kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. You see the crime Ananias and Sapphira have actually committed here? Satan has filled their hearts. They've lied to the Holy Spirit and they've lied to God. In verse 9, they've tested the Holy Spirit as well. Because remember what the church is. This is where it's so important that we looked at the age of blessing earlier. The church is not just a club. The church is not just a human institution, a human organization. No, the church is something God has made. The church is the community of blessed people. The church is the community that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon. The church is God's creation. And so in a way, Ananias and Sapphira have actually lied to God himself. They have lied to the Holy Spirit because the church is the people God has gathered and that the Holy Spirit's been poured out on. They're the people of God and the Holy Spirit. And what Ananias and Sapphira have done here is make a cynical mockery of God's blessing. God's poured out his blessing. Human hearts are being so changed that people are doing this miraculous thing. They're selling their own possessions and giving them away. They're so overcome by the generosity of God that they're doing amazing, miraculous things. And Ananias and Sapphira make a mockery of God's work in people's hearts. It's not simply that they didn't give all the money. It's that everyone else was giving because they'd experienced God's wonderful grace. And they cynically, cold-heartedly saw an opportunity in this. An opportunity to aggrandize themselves. An opportunity to glorify themselves. An opportunity to line their own pockets. They were using... The generous, abundant, poured out generosity of God to line their own pockets, to take, 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 to deceive people into thinking they were something that they were not. And so in doing this, they have said that God's age of blessing is nothing. God's generosity to them is nothing. God's generosity to me is nothing but an opportunity to look good and build a reputation that's based on lies. What they've done is like slashing a beautiful painting. What they've done is like spitting on a bride. They've thrown God's goodness back in his face. I don't care that you sent your son for me. 
I don't care that you're doing miracles. I don't care that you poured out the Spirit. I don't care that you're changing human hearts. This is my opportunity to buy a little cheap admiration and save a couple of bucks. You say, Ananias and Sapphira, show us what a serious thing it is to belong to the people of God. In fact, what an incredible honour that is to belong to the community of God's blessing. We're part of God's new age. We have a taste of heaven. Church is a serious business. Take a look how the people respond to Ananias and Sapphira in verse 5. Great fear seized all who'd heard what had happened. Or down in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. In fact, everyone's afraid. Verse 13, no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. See, it's a serious business to belong to the church. That's a frightening thing in a way, because church is something that God has built. Joining a church is not as simple as joining a human institution. It's becoming part of the community of blessing. And so everything I do to God's church, I do to the God who created the church. Joining church is a fearful thing. The way I treat God's people is the way I treat their God. I wonder, have you ever actually realized this? Have you ever realized that in joining God's church, the way you treat it is the way you treat God? And so if you take your church for granted, you're taking your God for granted. If you gossip about your church and badmouth your church, you gossip and badmouth your God. If you use your church for your own ends, you are using your God for your own ends. If you treat your church as something to be casual about, to dip in and out whenever it suits you and never really be committed, that's how you're treating the God who gathered these people together. There is a warning in this passage. The warning is in the midst of experiencing God's blessings, don't be like Ananias and Sapphira and throw God's generosity back in his face by treating his church lightly. You can see why as a church we run things like the Connect series, can't you? People often say, what do I have to do the Connect series? Why, why, why can't I just jump in to a growth group? Why can't I just join? And our answer is you need to know what you're joining. You need to know what it is you're committing to. It's not a light thing to join. See, maybe do you need to rethink the attitude you have built to church? Not just because it's a human institution, but because this is God's institution. I think we all need to make that readjustment at some point. But maybe now as we're moving back towards physically gathering at some point, maybe it is a good time for you to stop and think about the difference between joining any other human organization and joining the church of God himself. Now's a good season for us to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And then after I've prayed, I'm going to make a very quick announcement before I throw back to the other guys. But let's pray first. 
our great God, we praise you for the age of blessing. We praise you for the spirit poured out. We praise you for miracles, the lame leaping like deer. We praise you for forgiveness of sins. We praise you for heaven to come. And we thank you that as we see that church in Acts, we see the community of blessing. The people gathered together, your generosity poured out to them overflowing. We thank you for people like Barnabas. We thank you for their being one in heart and mind and their preaching the gospel and their generosity. And Father, we thank you that we see those things also in our church. And we know we could do better. We know that we can always be more like you. But we want to give you the credit for the blessings we have enjoyed so abundantly and richly. We want to humbly thank you and not congratulate ourselves. And we thank you for the stern warning that we see with Ananias and Sapphira to not treat the church lightly, but to see it as the, the gathered community that you have blessed. We pray that we would have some of that fear that the people around them had in their hearts, that we too would tremble to treat the gathered people of God lightly. Amen. Now, look, before I go back, before I throw back, I wanted to uh, let you know about something and also I'll pray at, at the end of it. Um, we haven't talked to you about uh, building stuff for a little while now. It's been quite a while, in fact, and that's because during COVID, it's actually been very quiet. But in the last couple of weeks, we've come across a building. Now, here's the really frustrating thing. I actually can't tell you any details about it because this building is not yet publicly on the market, but we've been able to find out about it earlier uh, and we've been able to enter into some kind of negotiation. It's still very early. Lots of stuff could go wrong, but what I would love for you to do is pray for two things. One, pray for wisdom and two, wisdom for the building committee and the elders, but two, pray that any of the obstacles that we see we might be able to overcome, that this might actually be the building. I'm going to pray for those things. You're going to hear more about all of this from us in the future. I'm going to pray for those things now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that just at the point when we can start to wonder whether or not we're going to find a building, we can start to doubt your goodness. Um, we thank you that you lift our hearts. And we don't know whether this building that we're looking at is the one, um, but we thank you for the encouragement of it. We pray for wisdom for the building committee and also for the elders. We pray that you help us to see any obstacles and hurdles. We pray that you help us to see if this is a bad idea. Um, and Father, we look forward to the time when uh, you give us a home on earth from which to preach the gospel before we reach our great home in heaven. Amen.